Hello, true crime fans. Today's sound effects are brought to you by a baby who will not go to sleep and a grandmother who does not understand how microphones pick up noise. However, we are going to proceed with this episode and hopefully have a few well-timed screams or at least hilarious noises to break the tension. We are talking about Kiplin Davis. Kiplin Davis was a typical 15-year-old girl in Spanish Fork, Utah. She had plenty of friends and was very active in planning and participating in weekly church activities with her friends and youth group. Kiplin had a unique appearance with her beautiful curly red hair and, like most teenage girls, was really into how she looked and how she presented herself to others at school. So on the morning of May 2nd, 1995, when Kiplin woke up later than usual, she was beside herself with frustration that her parents wouldn't let her miss her early morning's driver's education class, just so that she could put her makeup on before school. I want to pause here and say if my mom ever stopped me from putting my makeup on before school after like age 14, I would have had a total shit fit. And I completely understand this. And as a 32-year-old woman, I am one of those people who will not leave the house without my mascara. I'm just saying. Also, I have very light eyebrows and I would paint those on before that was a trend because otherwise I just looked pissed. But anyway, Kiplin insisted it would be totally fine if she missed just one class. Could she please just get ready for school without having to fly out the door without any makeup on? Well, of course, knowing how important driver's ed was and how much his daughter couldn't wait to drive, her dad, Richard, insisted she go, and there's no arguing about it. So off Kiplin went, getting into the car with her mom, Tamara. Tamara is quoted on Nightmare Next Door, Stealing Beauty, Season 8, Episode 1. Highly recommend you go check this out, and we'll bring it up a couple more times throughout this episode. She is quoted saying that she didn't know why Kiplin was upset when she got into the car to go to driver's ed, but assumed it was because she woke up late and didn't have time to get ready. If there was anything else to it, we will never know, but she didn't think anything more of it. And by the time Kiplin was dropped off, she went to class, and up until around fourth period, it seemed like a normal day. When we fast forward to the end of that school day, Richard arrived home from work and Kiplin wasn't there. On on this same episode of Nightmare Next Door, he talks about how you could set your watch to Kiplin being home from school by 3.30 p.m. And he assumed that maybe she stayed at school late to work on the upcoming drama club production or that she was at church, like literally one of two places that you would find her. And a few hours go by and he still hasn't heard from her. And even though it's 1995, Kiplin and her family all had cell phones, and when Richard hadn't even heard from her about where she was going to be or when she'd be home, he started to worry. He and Tamara called around to see if anyone had seen her, and in all of this, the school left a message on their answering machine saying that Kiplin had missed her afternoon classes, and Richard and Tamara's hearts sank. This was not like Kiplin at all, and something already felt very, very wrong. Being that she was only 15 when her parents went to the police, they refused to file a missing persons report and insisted that they issued a be on the lookout instead, and they were sure Kiplin would be back soon as she was probably with a boy or friends or just ran away because she was so upset that morning. This is within hours of her disappearance, and her family is already printing and distributing posters around the area. They knew 
how bad this was from the very beginning. And I can't imagine not having support of the police because they're so used to missing person cases turning out just fine, as truly most of them do. But knowing in your heart that this is so, so bad... In the meantime, they continue to call around to friends, and one of those friends recalls seeing Kiplin dancing in the auditorium with a senior, Chris Jepson. This friend made it seem very clear that he wasn't a fan of this kid, Chris, and I want to note that when a senior is schmoozing a 15-year-old, it just seems wrong to me anyway. The difference between 15 and 18 is so much bigger than a few short years. So much growth happens in that time, and it just feels so wildly inappropriate to me. And maybe it's because my parents never would have let me date anyone practically three years older than I was, but it just feels wrong anyway. This friend also indicates that he saw her leaving the school with this kid, Chris. It would later be found that her journal makes mention of a relationship that seems a little bit more than just friends through theater, but that she was very excited to have hugged and kissed Chris. I think I had my first kiss at like 14, so I can imagine she was pretty damn excited about all of this. And I know at that age, even just a hug is like, well, at least when I was 15, I know now kids are crazy. But anyway, I digress. As any parent would, Richard drives over to Chris's house where his sister insists that she was likely, excuse me, he was likely at play practice after school. By this time, it's about 1030 at night when Richard arrives at the school. Not knowing that Chris actually had a key to the building so that he could work on the theater production set whenever he wanted. The school appeared empty and dark, so Richard left. Eventually, he ended up back in front of Chris's house around 1 or 1.30 in the morning, and at that time, he sees a truck that he recognizes as Rucker Leafson's, another classmate of Kiplin's. Even though he sees lights on and it would appear that someone was probably up, he didn't go to the door. Now, a lot of you think, how could he not go to the door? He later says that there are just some rules you don't break no matter what's going on, and that's that disturbing someone at that hour of the night, he totally would not do it. It just was not allowed. And I totally disagree with this logic. However, I believe he truly means is that he was terrified that Kiplin wasn't there alive or that he would find out something horrible had happened and he wasn't prepared for that. So rather than go knocking on the door and finding out that the situation truly was as tragic as he would later find out that it was, he neglected to go to the door. So he was led by his worst fear, which ultimately would come true. The school re- excuse me, the school resource officer now gets involved, Sergeant Warner. And he has a feel for a lot of the students. His job is literally to like build a rapport with the kids and to be able to help in situations like this one, even though something like this had never happened at Spanish Fork High School, at least so far. Um, His presence in the halls, his hearing and witnessing so much student interaction, he was the go-to at the beginning of all of this. So when Chris's name was brought up by Kiplin's friend Eli, detectives thought it would be a good idea to talk to him. He says he was in class, and even that he was there the other night at the school when Kiplin's dad came by, but he just didn't realize it because the building was dark. Chris says he was all the way in the auditorium, and while he was working on the set for the play, he was visited by two others, Tommy, excuse me, Timmy Olson and Rucker leaves him. Chris claims to have been tossing a football around the auditorium with them. And when both Timmy and Rucker back his story and the police have nothing else to go on, they have no reason to continue to pursue Chris, Timmy, or Rucker. It wouldn't be long though, before students point to another male student, Brandon Meyer. This kid really takes the cake of sucking. Okay. He's like, 
Scott Peterson on the phone with your mistress while you're at your missing wife's vigil kind of suck. Okay. He asked Kiplin to go on a date with him at the end of that week on a Friday. Despite her parents' strict rule of no dating before 16, Kiplin happily accepted. Not long after she accepts, though, this jackass Brandon approaches her and calls the date off because his girlfriend caught wind of it and it was shut down. So that obviously doesn't make him a suspect, that alone. He also was missing from fourth period class on May 2nd and even went so far as to ask said girlfriend to fudge the record to show that he was actually there. I'm assuming she worked in the attendance office as a student leadership type of thing and had access to the attendance records, but either way, she declined to help. I mean, hopefully she was breaking up with him after he was asking other girls out despite dating her. But anyway, Brandon claims that he went straight home and he even had a tire blowout on the way home and called and asked a friend to help him out with that. Said friend could not corroborate Brandon's story, but police still didn't think that he was involved at all and found him, quote, believable. Suffice it to say, I don't think the department is set up for something of this capacity. However, I do think they did the best that they could, and I think that they handled everything rather well. In July of 1995, this is now three months later, the FBI gets involved to hopefully aid in the investigation by adding more resources and expertise to the table. However, it doesn't really seem to help as no further progress is made in finding Kiplin dead or alive. And nearly an entire year later, Chris Jepson goes to visit Kiplin's parents and tells her dad, I want to get this off my chest. I wanted to tell you that I had nothing to do with Kiplin's disappearance. And when you watch the documentary, Stealing Beauty, oh my Lord, does your heart sink and break for her dad. You can see and feel the pain in Richard's eyes and in his heart. And instantly he is enraged and grills Chris to know where she is. And Chris swears he really doesn't know. Now the police call all three in again. After this incident with Chris, they call Chris, Timmy, and Rucker back in and they have all of them take a polygraph. And in fact, they volunteered to take this polygraph. So Chris passes his polygraph with flying colors when he's asked if he had anything to do with the disappearance of Kiplin. And Rucker passed his as well. Now before taking the test, Timmy writes a statement identifying Rucker as the last person to be seen with Kiplin alive. He witnessed them walk over a hillside in Spanish Fork Canyon and Rucker returned without her. When asked what happened, Rucker said not to worry about it. And there's so very many things wrong with this scenario that it makes me crazy. While I read this information and process it, I can see a different scenario taking place. What's really cool about the way that feeling into this kind of thing works for me is that while yes, I do like to go into cases completely cold with no facts outside of a name and a photo, just nothing. I love that while I read, listen, or watch something, I can see the story playing out differently. It's like a little cue in my head that says, no, 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 this isn't accurate. Or yes, yes, this is exactly as it happened. And like my heart raises and I get excited because I can see it and I can feel that it's the truth, right? And in this instance, when I watched this on the documentary, I felt so strongly that Rucker and Timmy both walked over that hill with Kiplin. I can see them guiding her over the side of the hill, almost like by the elbow. One of them has her by the elbow, disappearing into a more private area off the trail, but no one's there anyway. It's the middle of the day on a weekday. And once there, I think that Timmy and Rucker both played an equal part in what happened to her that day. 
and details are not necessary. And like you've heard on this podcast before, I will never share any gruesome details just for the sake of sharing gruesome details. There are some things that should be left private and I will stand by that. So I will say though, that I believe she was hit in the head with a nearby object. I know on the documentary, they specify a rock. I do feel that is accurate and I can see her laying on the ground killed by that blunt force trauma. I also see the shock of the other person who I believe is Timmy after seeing Rucker striking her. I see her being dragged by her feet farther down the path and into a more dense area of brush and trees off the path. However, this is where I think things start to get tricky, but back to what we actually know. Rucker denies knowing what Timmy is going on about, but is later spotted by others in the area, threatening Timmy about what he had written in his statement to police. To follow up on what Timmy had written in his statement, the police brought out scent hounds. And also, Timmy would not go any further to comment about what he was saying. When they pressed him for more information, he said he wanted a lawyer and he left the police station. So the police bring out scent hounds and they, they dug out where Timmy said she likely was. And when I read that there was a dig a body, what I always assumed was a few detectives and some shovels, but I realize now how silly that is because when you watch Stealing Beauty, what you're shown is heavy machinery out there digging. They're sifting through the dirt. It's like it looks like they're digging for gold, like they're mining for gold, but what they're really sifting for is bones. And I literally got chills when I said that, but I'm sure there were people out there with shovels too, but this was definitely no small feat. They were out there in droves, just searching and searching for Kiplin's body. And when nothing was found, she was finally declared legally dead and a, mor- and a memorial was erected in her honor. This message is for you, mamas, women who have been letting everyone else's dreams come ahead of their own, and anyone who feels like they're struggling to put themselves as a first priority. Your dreams matter now just as much as they did before life started happening. And so many of us forget that we once had dreams and desires that we wanted to see fulfilled and pushed it all to the back burner using things like logic and other good reasons as to why we shouldn't do them now. Well, if you're ready to start committing to your dreams, then I would ask you to visit my website, katherineannintuitive.com and schedule a discovery call. If you're ready to really commit then I have 12 weeks for you to do that, working with me one-on-one to really explore your life and get back to living it in the way that you so desire to. Now, fast forward to 2002, a much more well-known case is in the headlines. Recognize the name Elizabeth Smart? At this point, Kiplin's dad is furious that her case didn't get and isn't getting the same treatment or media attention. He wrote to everyone who had any weight in the state of Utah. He wrote to the U.S. Attorney General, the Attorney General for the state of Utah, as well as his county attorney and the police chief of Spanish Fork. He would get this investigation to be taken to a grand jury, and he knew that they could uncover enough evidence there to bring charges against these boys, who were now men with lives of their own and families of their own. And here's what made my jaw drop. When I first felt into this case, I heard a couple of things that fit into what Richard also felt about what happened. I feel, first of all, that two of the boys were directly involved with what happened to Kiplin. I believe there was a sexual assault and that the two of them share guilt in it. However, like Kiplin's father, I also feel that a third person was brought into it. However, I think there was a sort of force involved. 
and I'll explain. After Rucker and Timmy left Kiplin's body behind, they were in a panic, and I'm not sure if they even knew she was dead, but they knew they couldn't get away with what had happened. And now I haven't sleuthed hard enough to see if I could find any information about Rucker's dad and his character. I haven't even read any Reddit commentary on this case, but I'm kind of excited to after recording to see if anyone else thinks what I think. But I feel that Rucker's father was involved. In fact, adult male was one of the things that I picked up on during my cold read into the case. I feel he was brought in to help cover up what they did. I think little shithead Rucker knew he could go to his good old dad and get help. And I believe dad stepped in to help get rid of Kiplin's body. I do not believe that Rucker or Timmy know where Kiplin's body actually is, nor does Chris. So where is she? I believe that there was a point where they tried to bury her. But that is where the boys messed up. That's where they called daddy in. And I think that that's when Rucker's father, David, took her and disposed of her in a way that he didn't tell the kids and that they were protected from actually knowing. I get the sense of fire involved. I heard incineration. I don't know if that means like a regular like trash can fire that they used to burn her that he used or if he took her somewhere, but I feel that he disposed of her in a way that no one will find her. And what's more is that I don't think that Chris, Rucker, or Timmy know where she is. So what was Chris's involvement exactly? What I feel is that Timmy bragged to Chris about what happened in the same way that he bragged about it later. I think that they used the possibility of seeing Chris as part of how they got her to go with them to begin with. They knew what happened with Brandon And they knew that she would go just about anywhere to see Chris as they were seen dancing earlier. Everyone knew that they were kind of a thing. And I think that they brought her out there kind of like, okay, well, you're willing to go with Brandon. Of course, you'd be willing to go with us. Like, we deserve this too. Like, you're with Chris. And they they kind of like perceived her in a really false light of what she would have been willing to do. And I think when she refused to do certain things willingly, that was it. That was the end. And if you do more digging into this one, multiple podcasts and sources will talk about how Chris's wife once asked him, what's the worst thing he ever did was? And he responded with, what if I told you I killed Kiplin Davis? She obviously freaked out and he said he was kidding immediately. However, I do believe he was messing with her. Super fucked up, but 100%. I think he knows what happened, but had zero involvement in it. I think he sits, it sits in the forefront of his mind in the majority of the time. And that's why it came out when she asked that question. But I state again, I do not think he physically had anything to do with it, though he knew what happened from the very beginning. Following the grand jury, Timmy is sentenced with 15 counts of perjury and 12 and a half years in federal prison. Chris is found guilty of perjury as well, but I believe only one count and sentenced to five years, while Rucker is found guilty of perjury and sentenced to only four. Timmy was able to be charged and sentenced for the most simply because he had the most witnesses able to testify against him. And once police started to convene this grand jury, they were able to subpoena so many witnesses that were willing to talk about about Timmy at parties or people at the bar who had all heard the story about what happened to Kiplin. And he would make people so uncomfortable bringing this up all the time. So Chris was likely an accessory while Timmy, they were sure was involved in the actual crime itself. I'm telling you watch ceiling beauty because it hands down has the most information about this case and seeing the faces of these people really helps to bring it all together. Well, 
In May of 2009, Timmy pled guilty to felony manslaughter and served his sentence in concurrence with his perjury sentence. He claims that he witnessed the crime but didn't kill her, and without a body, there's really nothing to prove otherwise. While I believe that's probably true, I don't believe he was innocent of the crime altogether. I believe Rucker delivered the blow that killed her. Chris pled guilty to no contest to the charge of obstruction of justice, which is fair because I do believe that he knew everything that happened and didn't go to the police, but was able to because there was no body. Whether he was there or not, I do not believe he saw the murder happen. I'm not the only one who thinks Rucker had more involvement than was brought to light. His sister, Nicole, believes that the men in her family, three brothers and her father, are all silent over what they know about Rucker's involvement. Rucker has two brothers. He is the third, just to clarify. And others have speculated that this is a simple family feud, but I think that there's truth to this. And I absolutely feel that they know more and that they will all take it to the grave with them. While awaiting sentencing, Rucker was also accused of threatening his ex-girlfriend. According to the Salt Lake Tribune, Rucker violated his pre-sentencing release conditions by allegedly threatening an ex-girlfriend and then failing to appear in court on phone harassment charges which carry the possibility of a six-month sentence. What a winner, winner, winner. The article says that he texted his ex saying that he was on his way to go with, excuse me, to go with her with the intention of doing harm. He was then issued a summons to appear in court for the phone harassment charges, did not show, and a warrant was then issued for his arrest. He clearly was not seeing in the fair side of the law while he was already in trouble. Look his ass up on Facebook. His profile is super private, but I so badly want to dig through it. It just, just his profile picture makes me furious. And he's the only one I could find. There were two others that received perjury charges, but again, watch the documentary, do some digging on your own. Something that was said in the documentary actually completely shattered my heart. Her dad talked about how he would leave his porch light on for his daughter until the day that she was home. And the light has been left on every night since her disappearance. My mom always left the porch light on for us when one of us kids wasn't home yet at night. And I can only imagine this level of grief that he and Tamara and her sister must be feeling. And I have to say, Timmy also refused to give any information on where her body was. But again, I don't think he even actually knows. I think he could have given that description of where she kind of was because they did attempt to bury her to begin with. I think he's also been back to that site on his own, but she's not there. She's not there because she was moved by Rucker's dad. If you or anyone you know have any insight as to the disappearance of Kiplin Davis, please contact the FBI, Utah State Police, or Spanish Fork Police. And if you like what you hear, please go hit that follow or subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And unless you are a part of the Patreon coming to our victim interview this Wednesday, which there's still time to get in on, or perpetrator, I believe we may be talking to a killer this month, then I will catch you guys next week with Murder and Mediumship. Thanks for listening. <laughs>